Hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are joining us. Whether you are here on site or online, we are just excited that you're here for week two of our series, Hacked. And I just looked online and we've got Jeff from Skytook, among others who are worshiping with us today. So if you are here on site, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online family. So glad to have you guys joining us here today. And like I said, we're in week two of our series, Hacked. And we're calling our series this because Satan loves to hack what God intended for our good. And we're talking about relationships because God is the designer of relationships intended for marriage and our family lives and, and our friendships to be a good thing because he created them for our good. And yet Satan loves to attack, he loves to hack what God intended for our good. That's why in 1 Peter it says this. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We have a very real enemy that is waiting to pounce, looking for an area of weakness, just waiting to attack. But here's the thing. Peter doesn't write this to scare us. He writes this to prepare us because look at what he goes on to say. Yeah, we have a very real enemy, the devil, but then he says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Meaning even though Satan is powerful, don't give him too much credit. We can resist him. We resist him by standing firm in our faith because we have this promise. Greater is the one who is in us than he who is in this world. So even though Satan is looking for weaknesses, even though Satan is looking to attack he doesn't have to get the best of us. He doesn't have to win the battle of our relationships. We have a God who lives within us who is greater than the one who is in this world. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that truth, especially when it comes to our relationships, because we have some good and bad days, don't we? I came across a video a couple years ago of these two brothers, little boys, who tried orange pop for the very first time, and their reaction is just classic. It's great. Take a look at this clip. I love that. Isn't that great? And why is it that parents film something like that and put it online for everybody to see? Well, it's a picture of pure joy, but also parents know every moment isn't like that when it comes to your kids. Because one moment they're laughing, they're getting along, they're having fun, and the next moment they're fighting and at each other's throats. Take, for example, this video that I also saw online of these sisters. They're jousting in a foam pit, and their little brother is crawling up behind them. So this one sister takes care of the other, and then she goes in for the kill. Look at that. Bam. <laughs> Now, don't worry, the baby was all right, okay? The mom is the one who put this up on Twitter, so don't worry, everybody's okay. But that video, I think, represents our relationships a lot more sometimes than the first one. Relationships are hard. They're difficult. They're challenging at times. 
And when we have challenging days, Satan's ready to pounce. But here's the thing. The Bible teaches us that healthy relationships are possible when we do them God's way. But here's the thing. They're not automatic. We've got to do them God's way. Let me put it another way. See, no one drifts into a healthy relationship. It takes work. It takes effort. And most importantly, it takes God. That's why Paul writes this in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you. See, our culture, the world around us, they don't know how to do relationships. You don't believe me? Just watch the latest movies that are out there or TV shows or watch the news. Our culture fails at doing relationships over and over and over again. But God knows how to do them right. And that's why this promise at the end of this text is our goal for this series. We believe that when we listen to God and pay attention to Him and do our relationships His way, He can bring the best out of our relationships. No matter what situation you're in right now. And right now you may be in a bad situation. You might be in a good situation. Somewhere in between. But wherever you are. When you do your marriage. Your friendships. Your family life. God's way. He can bring the best out of your situation. And that's why I love the Bible. Because the Bible contains so much practical information about how to do relationships right. In fact, when some people start to study God's Word, they're kind of blown away at how shockingly real the Bible is at times because we get all these real-life stories of real-life people who were dealing with real challenges and issues in life that we can all relate to. And sometimes these stories about people are positive examples, you know, how people did relationships right and we can learn from their example But then there are also stories in Scripture of bad examples, of people who did relationships wrong, who made mistakes and allowed for Satan to get a foothold. And I think those passages are contained within Scripture so that we can also learn from them, so that we don't repeat their mistakes. And that's the type of example story that we're going to look at today. It's a bad one. It's a bad example. But I think it's in there so that we will not make the same mistakes as these two people we're going to talk about. They were brothers named Jacob and Esau. You've probably heard of them before. They weren't just brothers. They were twins. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes siblings, and even twins especially, can be close. I mean, almost like best friends. But sometimes siblings, twins, can fight. And it can go to the extreme to where they're living in competition with one another. They're jealous of one another. And that was Jacob and Esau's story. See, normally when we say their names, we say Jacob and Esau. But really, Esau was the oldest. They were twins. They were just minutes apart. But Esau was the oldest. He was born first. And so what that meant was Esau got the family birthright. He was the one who was going to receive a double portion of the family inheritance. And also, he was going to be the one who was going to be the master over the family estate. So this was a big deal. And Jacob, the younger of the two, this just bugs him. I mean, it really eats at him. Because he thinks, I missed this birthright by a matter of minutes. 
It isn't fair. And Jacob makes that known. And so these two, well, they start to develop a sibling rivalry. They go back and forth. And we're used to sibling rivalries, right? I mean, we've probably seen them or been a part of them ourselves. I mean, that's pretty typical. I mean, I just... A few weeks ago, my family, we experienced this. We were supposed to have soccer games on a Saturday. And so my son Alex had a game scheduled for that morning. And my daughter had one for that afternoon. And it was raining that morning when we got up. And so I looked online and Alex's game was canceled that morning. So I went to tell him. I was like, hey, buddy, your game's canceled. And he was bummed. He was so sad. I mean, he already had his jersey on and everything. He was ready to go play. And I'm like, I'm sorry, buddy. We're not going to get to play today. And then he looked at me. He said, well, what about Addie's game? I was like, well, we don't know yet. They said if it cleared up, then she'll still get to play. He's like, I hope she doesn't get to play. I mean, just immediately. And so I went back to him later to say, guess what? They didn't cancel Addie's game. She's going to get to play later this afternoon. And he was so upset. And you know, and as a parent, I would want for my son to say, that is great for my sister, that she is going to experience the joy of playing soccer today. You know, I would love for that to be his response, but it's not. Instead, he's mad. Why? Because his sister is going to get something that he didn't get. And isn't that how sibling rivalry works? But Jacob and Esau, their situation, it goes to the extreme. To the point that they start to despise one another. The Bible says hatred is formed. And it's formed because well, what Jacob and Esau are very different. And we're going to read about that here in just a second. But it also happens because of their parents. Because their parents choose favorites. Look what happens here as we read in Genesis chapter 25. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved, now Isaac is their dad, okay? So their dad, Isaac, loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah, their mom... She favored, she loved Jacob. So Isaac, their dad, loves Esau because Esau is a man's man. You know, he likes to go hunt and he likes to do all the outdoorsy stuff. I mean, that's what he is all about. But Rebecca, their mom, she favors Jacob because Jacob has a more quiet spirit, it says. It says that he likes to stay home and do the chores around the house and that kind of stuff. The actual Hebrew, when it says he had a quiet spirit and liked to stay at home, the Hebrew language there literally reads that Jacob was a mama's boy. No, not really. I'm kidding. But that's basically what it's saying, okay? He liked to hang out with his mom. Esau liked to hang out with their dad. And those two parents started to favor the child that they were most like. Now, we've seen this play out before, where children drive a wedge between parents. It's not intentional. No one wants it to happen. It just happens. And Satan loves to use this as a tactic to divide and tear up families. And that's why the Bible teaches us that marriage should never take a back seat to parenting. And let me explain what I mean by that. There's a certain order that God's word gives us when it comes to our relationships. Our relationships should flow in this order. It should be God first. Our relationship with him is what's most important. It's our spouse second, and then our children third, and then every other relationship comes after this. Now, 
Every time that I do a baby dedication here at church, I will speak to those parents and I will tell them, I will use this language, put your kids third. And whenever I say that, I can just see people kind of set up in their seats. That makes them feel a little bit uncomfortable. They haven't heard that before. Our world doesn't teach that at all. And in fact, some people at first think that it sounds a little bit mean. Now, don't misunderstand me. When I say put your kids third, I am not saying that we should in any way neglect our kids. I believe the Bible teaches that children are a gift from God, and we are to cherish them and love them and invest in them and be present in their lives, take care of them, protect them, nurture them. The list goes on and on. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when you get this out of order and you start to put your kids above your spouse, you even start to put your kids above God, it causes dysfunction. Our culture has turned children into little gods to where a family revolves around the kids. The kids call all the shots. The kids make all the decisions. The kids are the little gods of the parents of the parents' Worship and bow down to. And the kids start to believe that they are the center of the universe. And our culture says that's okay. But here's the thing. When you get this mixed up and you treat your children like they're the center of the universe instead of God being the center of your universe, it does damage to your relationship with God. It does damage with your relationship to your spouse. And it will also do damage to your children because they will live in a world thinking that they are the center of everything. And then they will go on to meet a spouse one day and that's going to cause damage in their marriage relationship because they're going to enter into marriage thinking that they're the center of the universe. But here's the thing. It's not just people who put children above God. But sometimes people will put children above their spouse. And when this happens, it also leads to destruction. Because one day your kids are going to move out. One day your kids aren't going to live under your roof anymore and you're going to be left with this other person that you married a long time ago. And if you've been investing all of your time in your kids and not continue to have a healthy relationship with your spouse, you're going to be two strangers living under the same roof. Why is it that we can probably all recall a story or know a situation of parents who got divorced as soon as their kids moved out? Because over the years, they, they separated emotionally before they ever separated physically. Because their focus wasn't on their marriage like it should be anymore. See, this is the order that God intended. And when we mix this up, it always, always leads to problems. And don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' words for it. Listen to what Jesus says. One time in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, he was asked about marriage. And listen to what Jesus says. It says, And he, Jesus, answered and said, Have you not read that he, speaking of God, who created the human race from the beginning, made them male and female, and said... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. Now, a lot of times when we hear that last phrase, no person is to separate, we think, well, you know, an affair shouldn't separate a married couple, or a person from the outside shouldn't separate a married couple, or even the couple itself shouldn't want to be separated from one another. That's what we think about. But let me ask you something. Your kids, are they people? 
Yes, that was the answer. Okay, yes. Your child is a person. And so when Jesus says no person should separate you, that includes your kids. It's got to be God first, marriage second, and kids third. And here's the thing. When you get the first two right, when God is first and you are loving him as you are supposed to be loving him and following him like you're supposed to be following him, and then you put your spouse second and you are loving your spouse and you are supposed to love your spouse as God's word commands you, your kids will find the love and the security and the nourishment that they need to have a healthy life. When you get the first two right, the third one comes naturally. But you mix that up, it always leads to dysfunction. Rebecca and Isaac, the parents of Jacob and Esau, they got that mixed up. Let's read and see what happens. It says, one day when Jacob was cooking some stew, remember he liked to stay at home and do the stuff around the house. When he was cooking some stew, Esau, his brother, arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. You know who Esau sounds like right now? One of my kids. You know, my kids will come to me all the time and they'll say, Daddy, we're starving. I was like, no, you're not. You're not starving. You might be hungry. Sometimes they're not even hungry. They're just bored and they want to eat. You know, they're like, I'm starving, Daddy. And I'm like, no, you're not. You don't even know what starving is. There are kids in other countries that are starving. There are kids in our country that are starving. But you're not starving. And then they just continue saying, I'm starving. But still, doesn't Esau sound like just a little kid here? He may be a grown adult. At this time, but he's not acting very mature. But here's the thing, Jacob, he doesn't respond in a mature way. Jacob says, all right, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. There it is again. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. In other words, he didn't respect this gift that he had been given, the birthright of the family. Now, this is just amazing to me. So Esau comes in from hunting and he's hungry And he's so hungry, he thinks he's going to die. And so he's willing to give up his birthright, a double portion of the family estate, and basically heir to the family throne here, you might say. He's going to give up everything for a bowl of stew? Really? And then Jacob, instead of being a loving brother and just saying, sure, you're hungry, you've been out hunting, here you go, brother. No, instead it's, okay, give me what you have. Give me your birthright. See, Jacob thinks that if he has the birthright, then he'll find lasting satisfaction, lasting fulfillment. He'll have a new identity that he's looking for. And Esau, in the moment, thinks, I don't care what else I have. I just need my immediate needs met. And as long as you fill my bowl with what I want right now, then I'll be happy. And here's the thing. Both of them get what they want. And neither one of them are happy in the end. It doesn't bring about lasting satisfaction. It doesn't bring about lasting contentment. They're both longing for more. So much so that as time goes on, something else big happens. You see, in this day and age, the patriarch, the father of the entire household, before he would die, he would leave a blessing 
for one of his children. And this blessing meant that this child was going to carry on the promises of God for that family. It was a big deal in this day and age. And so Isaac, their dad, he's old, he's on his deathbed, he's getting ready to die, he's blind, he's lost his vision, can't see anymore, not in good health. And he says, bring in Esau, my favorite son, because I'm going to pass the family blessing on to him. And Jacob, here's what's going on, you know what Jacob does? Jacob sneaks into the room, he dresses up like his brother, changes his voice to sound like his brother. And he acts like he's Esau so that his dad will bless him. Instead, he steals his brother's blessing. And as crazy and soap opera-ish as that sounds, (laughs) Jacob did all that with the encouragement of his mother, Rebecca. Rebecca helped him plan the whole thing out to steal his brother's birthright and blessing. How sad is that? Talk about dysfunction. And here's what happens. It says in Scripture that Esau hated his brother when he found it out. He hated Jacob because he had stolen the blessing that was supposed to be his. So he said to himself, just as soon as my father dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. I'll kill my brother. So he's moved from hatred to murder in this moment. And Rebecca, their mom, gets word that Esau wants to kill Jacob. And so Rebecca warns her son, and Jacob flees. He runs to a distant country to hide out because he knows Esau's serious, and Esau has a temper. He can do it. So Jacob goes and he hides, and for the next 15 years, Jacob will live on the run. For the next 15 years, he will have no contact with his family. For the next 15 years, he and his brother will not text one another. They won't call one another. They won't exchange emails or Christmas cards. They're not even Facebook friends. For the next 15 years, no contact whatsoever. Their relationship is broken. Their relationship is shattered. They've been hacked. I was reading an article just the other day about hackers when it comes to technology. And according to this article, there is, there's a hacker that will hack a piece of technology, meaning either our computers or tablets or phone, whatever, every 39 seconds in our world. Every 39 seconds, a piece of technology is hacked. Isn't that crazy? And as I was reading this article... It said that hackers look for certain things, weaknesses to prey on. And when they find weaknesses in firewalls or cybersecurity, that's when they attack. And as I was reading this article, I thought, on a spiritual level, that's how Satan, our enemy, operates as well. He's constantly looking for weaknesses so that he can attack, so that he can prey on us. And I think, again, that's why we get examples like this in Scripture, bad examples of how to do relationships, so that we can identify weaknesses in our own lives and we won't repeat the same mistakes. So there are a few observations here that I think we can pick out of this story that we just looked at and hopefully will help you as you examine the relationships in your life. 
And the first observation that I see is this. Unsatisfied appetites lead to unrealistic expectations. Unsatisfied appetites lead to unrealistic expectations. Both Jacob and Esau believed that the wrong things would satisfy them. Jacob thought that if he could just get the birthright, and if he could just get his father's blessing, his father's approval, then he would be satisfied. But it didn't happen. Esau, on the other hand, thought that if he could just get whatever desire he had in the moment met, then he would be happy. But it didn't work either. And you remember Esau's language I talked about. He says, I'm starved. And guys, we are living in a world today where people are starving for something more. And because they're starving for something more, they're trying to fill their bowls with all sorts of stuff. Trying to find happiness, trying to find fulfillment, trying to find joy and satisfaction. And so they fill their bowls with things like power and status, sports, sex, vacations, food, money, possessions, fame, you name it. They keep filling their bowls with all this stuff, all these things, hoping that something will bring them lasting contentment. But as much as they fill their bowls, their souls are still empty. Their souls are still missing what matters. And that's a relationship with God. Because no matter what they put in their bowls, the only thing that can fill that void within our hearts, within our souls, is the God who created us. Nothing else will ultimately, eternally satisfy us. And just as nothing else in this world will satisfy us eternally, no other person will satisfy us eternally either. You see, another person is incapable of meeting every single need in your life. So don't ask them to do so. Because when you do that, you are placing false expectations, unrealistic expectations on that person. You're asking them to do something for you that only God can do. You've probably seen this movie clip. It's from the movie Jerry Maguire. It's when he makes that famous, well-known statement, you complete me. And every time that I see that clip, I'll, I'm always just like, oh. I mean, you know, it's just, come on, it's it, whatever. But you may, you may love that. You may think that's a great moment. And I'm sorry to say this, but it's not biblical. <laughs> Listen to what God's word says. God's word says this. It says, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete. Once you experience the love of Jesus, once you enter into this relationship with him, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Guys, only God can complete you. Don't ask another person to do what only God can do for you. Because when you ask another person to do for you what only God can do, you will deplete that other person. You will end up disappointed and you will destroy the relationship you have with them. Let God be God and let your spouse be your spouse. Let God be God and let your friend be your friend. Let God be God and let your kid be your kid. We have different roles for a reason. And only God can fill us up for all eternity. 
Now, when it comes to marriage, I'm not saying that another person can't journey with you through life and help you seek God. And the Bible says you become one. So you serve God together. And he is the fulfillment that you receive together. I'm not saying that you can't do it together. In fact, that's what the Bible says we should be doing. But any time that I do premarital counseling with couples, I always say, I hope you don't have the mindset that you are two incomplete people, and when you come together in marriage, you're going to be one complete person, because that never works. When you have two incomplete people and you bring them together, you know what you have? Two incomplete people. What you need is two complete people. And by complete people, I don't mean perfect. I just mean people who are following Jesus. Two complete people who find their identity in Jesus. When they come together, they become one complete person. It's following Jesus together. Don't ask someone else to do for you what they were never designed to do. Your friends, your family members, your children, your spouse, they were never designed to be your God. Let God be God. Another observation that I see from this passage is that family dysfunction has a ripple effect. We are all products of the families that we grew up in, of the homes that we grew up in. Whether we realize or not, whether we like it or not, stuff rubs off. And we need to be aware of this. Because if you grew up in a family where anger and violence were normal, that's going to affect you. If you grew up in a home where addiction was prevalent, that's going to influence you. If you grew up in a home where there was a lot of lying and cheating and deception, it's going to weigh you down later on if you're not careful. If you grew up in a home where people like to bottle up their emotions and hide their emotions, they would just act like nothing was wrong, and if we just ignored it all, go away, that is going to continue to influence you. We are products of the homes that we grew up in. And that's why the Bible gives us this warning in the book of Exodus. It says, the sins of the parents affect their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. It's not that we are held accountable for the sins of our parents. Only the person who commits a sin is held accountable before God for that sin. But the consequences of sin have a corporate effect. The consequences of sin have a ripple effect. And the consequences, the influence of a sin can carry down for generations to the third and fourth generation. And so you may be thinking, hey, this sin in my life is just affecting me. This sin in my life is just bothering me. You have no idea who it's going to affect. It could very likely have an impact on not just your children, but your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren as well. See, that's what happened to Jacob and Esau. Their parents weren't as healthy as they should be, and it affected them. And we're going to see this ripple effect continue on if you read on and study about the children of Jacob and Esau as well. See, the consequences of sin continue to carry on, but they don't have to. Because the Bible gives us this promise. Look at what Scripture says. Scripture says, God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. In other words, you can't help the empty life that was passed down to you, but it doesn't have to define you. Jesus died. God paid a ransom to save you, to rescue you from that empty way of life. So you get the choice. You can either just repeat the cycle that's been going on for generations in your family, or in Jesus, you can be a cycle breaker. And Jesus, you can find the peace that you're looking for and a new purpose. 
And when you invite God into the pain of your past, he can write a new story for you. And you can start a new cycle in your family. A cycle where people are seeking God and following his will. There's one more observation that I'm going to point out before we wrap up today, and it's this. Rather than focusing on what someone else should do, focus on who God wants you to become. Now, I know that's a long statement, but I think it's so true. Rather than focusing on what someone else should do, focus on who God wants you to become. Because we have a tendency in our relationships, when there's a problem, when there's a conflict, to always think that we're innocent and everybody else is wrong, right? I mean, we can be stubborn at times. But here's the thing. We're all imperfect. And a lot of times when it comes to conflict, there are some things that we can own. Now, let me just say, I'm not talking about abuse situations, more serious situations like that. I'm just talking about relational conflict in general terms. And when it comes to relational conflict, none of us are perfect. And so that's why the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, it says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, do what you can do, own what you can own to reconcile with the relationships in your life. Do what you can do in order to make peace with everyone. Do whatever you can do to have a healthy marriage or a healthy home life. Do whatever you can do because there's always something we can do. And anytime I have somebody who comes to me and they say, you know, it's just all their fault. It's all their fault. Everything's their fault. I'm like, really? Really? Do you honestly expect for me to believe that? Because most of the time there is something that we can do. You see, the best relational advice that I ever heard came from Jesus, of course. And it says this. Jesus says, do for others what you would want them to do for you. In other words, treat others as they want to be treated. Can you imagine what our marriages would look like if everybody followed this every single day? Can you imagine what our friendships would look like, what our home lives would look like if we followed this wisdom every single day? It's the mindset that says, you first, me second. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came and he put us before himself. He lowered himself in order to lift us up. And imagine what our marriages in this country, imagine what our families in this country and our friendships in this country would look like if everybody had the mindset, I'm going to put you before me. It can be done. And even, even if you've been living a life where you've been very self-centered and selfish, people can change. I see change taking place on a regular basis in this place. I see people change within my own family. I mean, one, one area of life where I see change happen all the time is when it comes to grandparenting. I'm not sure if you all have noticed this, but my parents, now they've become grandparents, will let my kids get by with things that used to, that they would never let us get by with. In fact, I saw this meme just the other day. It says, my mom as a mom, no toys in the living room. Then it says, my mom as a grandma, and look at the big blow-up thing in the middle of the living room, you know? People change. Grandparenting is proof of that. But in a much more serious way, if you've been focused on yourself, you need to let God transform you. Because that's not the way of the cross. That's not the way of Jesus. And the key to living in healthy relationships is having a you first, me second mindset. That's not what our culture teaches. Our culture teaches do what's best for you. But that's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus flips it around and says you've got to put others before yourself. And the way that we do that is when we ground ourselves in God's grace. 
Because when we realize that we don't deserve everything that God has given to us, and we realize how great his grace really is, then we're willing to forgive others who don't deserve it. We're willing to serve others who don't deserve it. We're willing to do for others when they don't deserve it because we realize that nothing that we do for anybody else compares to the grace that God has shown us. And let me make a little side note here. If you're somebody listening to this message today and you're in a dating relationship right now and you're dating somebody that has a me first, you second mindset, you need to reevaluate that relationship. Because if that person is all about them and they're forcing you to do things that you don't want to do because they're all about them and they never listen to you, they don't care about your needs, it's all about their needs, that is not a healthy relationship. And it's not the way of Jesus. And so I challenge you, if you're in that type of relationship right now, you need to rethink that. And that person either needs to change and find help or you need to get out of it. Because a healthy relationship is where two people together say, I'm going to put the other person before myself. Eventually, Jacob, he humbles himself. It takes 15 years, but God works on him for the next 15 years. And eventually, Jacob humbles himself, and God is telling him, you need to go back to your family. You need to reconcile with your brother. Jacob is scared, but he says, God, I'm going to put you first. And so he does it. And listen to this prayer that Jacob offers up to God. He says, oh, God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, oh, Lord, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives. And, and you promised me I will treat you kindly. I am not worthy of the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me. See his humility here? Your servant. Finally, Jacob stops scheming. He stops trying to get his own way. He stops being selfish. And he says, God, whatever you want, I'm going to do. I'm going to put you first. And when you put God first, when you get the order right, everything else starts to fall into place. So Jacob, after 15 years, he's now married. He's got kids. He's got a whole uh, group of servants with him, a whole entourage. He takes them all back to his homeland. As they're getting close to where his brother lives, Esau, Jacob sends one of his servants ahead to tell Esau that he's coming. And he also sends these servants or messengers that he sent ahead with some gifts for Esau because he wants to butter him up. Remember, Esau wants to kill him, you know? So he sends some gifts to kind of offer a peace offering, you might say. And then these messengers, they come back and they say, oh, Esau's not waiting for you to come to him. He's coming to you. And he's bringing 400 men with him. He's bringing an army with him. And I bet you Jacob's probably thinking, oh no, I'm in trouble. And Jacob is scared, but God continues to reassure him. And Jacob decides to go meet his brother. And this is what happens. Then Jacob went on ahead, and as he approached his brother... Jacob bowed to the ground, see the humility, seven times before him. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. Jacob humbles himself, 
and he bows before Esau seven times. He would have never done that years ago, but he did it now because he's doing whatever he needs to do to bring about reconciliation, to bring about restoration. He humbles himself before God and before his brother, not knowing how his brother is going to respond. And what does Esau do? This manly man, this hunter who spends all of his time outdoors, runs up and wraps his arms around his younger brother and kisses him and they weep together. Why? Because apparently God had been working on Esau too. And the two men finally humbled themselves and they focused on grace. And because of God's amazing grace, two brothers who were totally apart, whose relationship had been hacked, are reconciled back together again. You see, in order, in order for your relationships to heal and be healthy, you have to replace resentment with grace. Long-term relationships only become long-term when you humble yourself and when you fill your life with lots and lots and lots of grace. So let me ask you, what are you carrying around today? Resentment or grace? What are you carrying around today? Selfishness or grace? Because no matter where you are right now, no matter what situation you're in, there is no brokenness that is too big for God to heal. When you live your life grounded in his grace, he can do the unthinkable. He can restore whatever has been broken. He can restore whatever has been hacked. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this moment that we've had to open up your word and study it. And we just pray that as we are challenged from your word, that we will be a people who put you first. And we know that when, you, when we put you first and we put all of our other relationships in the right order as you command us, that, Father, you will work things out for good. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.